HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. You may have noticed that one Whole Foods Market store is not like the other. We're proud that each of our stores has its own quirks, a direct connection to the surrounding community, and buys and sells their own products. Whether it's artisanal chocolates exclusive to Bowery, small batch pickles in Chelsea, or a featured craft beer on tap at West 97th, you'll find that each store is a little bit different than the next. With six Manhattan locations, Whole Foods Market offers a taste of every neighborhood. Come see us in Tribeca, Bowery, Union Square, Chelsea, Columbus Circle, or the Upper West Side. Open seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. For more information, visit www.wholefoodsmarket.com. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on our half-hour journey through culinary history. And today, I think I'll start out by giving you a little quiz. We're going to talk about a single subject that has many variations. It's one of the oldest and most essential ingredients in our diet. It comes from both the land and the sea, and yet it's so desired and rare and necessary that it quickly became a commodity in early history traded as currency, and actually became the product of the earliest tax. At the table, it has designated a person's political and social status and was the impetus behind great artists' creations with precious metals. Have you guessed it yet? Those of you with some knowledge would know, of course, we're talking about salt. And we have with us today Mark Bitterman, a sommelier, <laughs> a salt expert, he, one of the leading salt experts, actually, and the author of Salted, a manifesto on the world's most essential mineral with recipes. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me, Linda. Uh, Mark, Mark owns two stores. Um, are they both called The Meadow? Yes. The Meadow, and they're salt stores, one in Portland, Oregon, and the other one here in New York City, the newest one here in New York City. Uh, you sell salt and other things as well. We sell salt, chocolate, flowers, and cocktail bitters here in New York and uh, wine in Portland, Oregon. But your main focus is salt. Uh, I mean, that's that's been the passion of your life. But t- I mean, writing in, in, an entire manifesto, it's, a, it's a, actually a lovely book, I must say, and up for a James Beard Award, which is being uh, honored this weekend. So congratulations I'm trying not to that. hold my breath, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
tell me how what what spawned your interest in uh, in salt, and how did you how did this come about? I mean, uh, to devote not only a, a book but your your career. Yeah, uh, salt was something that I just noticed early on uh, in my traveling and eating as sort of a, a uniquely uh, local and prized ingredient. So I'd be traveling through Europe, for example, and and eating something and seeing salt play this amazing role or, or being uh, treated with an immense amount of respect. And uh, I saw that kind of wherever I went. And over time, I started to realize, well, I see that in certain places, other places it becomes this kind of homogenous chemical. What was what gives these two? And so I started to collect these regional distinctive salts and 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 pay attention to how they're being used in different cuisines. And I guess it's kind of evolved for me into uh, the crystal, if you will, through which I look <laughs> at food and culture. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because you did um, write about a, a very colorful story of eating a, a steak somewhere in France, and then you were suddenly turned on to this wonderful taste. I still remember that steak. Uh, and one of the things that I didn't uh, mention in the book, but a kind of parallel to that, I lived for about three years in a chateau in the south of France, and we raised... Oh, tough our, life. It was miserable. <laughs> uh, just uh, restoring uh, the, the exterior of the building and doing the inside, and I became kind of part of the family and the people that live there. Uh, we grew uh, most of our own food, raised lamb, hunted wild boar and mushrooms and all that stuff. And uh, we would be visited by these literally Michelin star chefs from Paris and the Loire Valley, and they would come and uh, little hampers of champagne and favorite goodies. And I was remarking this. I, I noticed it at one point that they would come and they would put on the table a little cellar of salt that they had brought with them. Their own salt. Yeah. These are people with unlimited resources, unlimited technical skill, unlimited acumen about food in general. And the the very, very select things that they would take with them would, would include salt, I think almost without exception. Hmm. And I thought that was really noteworthy. Yeah, you can really tell a, a salt and food connoisseur when they bring out their own salt cellar, <laughs> for sure. Well, you do challenge um, people in your book to... Uh, to try, you know, to be more creative in their salting, and and you said that they're to explore the dazzling world of salt beyond the iodized curtain. I, I love that <laughs> that you use that all because what did we know back in the fifties other than you know Morton's iodized salt, you know, or maybe you know a couple others, but that was about it. Um, so what I would like to do is is before we get on to all these wonderful new salts. Not new, old, but but have reemerged. Um, is talk a little bit about the history of salt, and and you do mention you do give a some background of salt. I mean, it's it, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it it's one of the oldest um, produced elements and and flavorings that we have. What do we know about the early production? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, my my book does have a chapter on the history of salt, but it's. Because I'm not a food historian, um, I took it more from the perspective of the salt. Mm -hmm. uh, what role did salt find itself playing throughout history? And um, and really, if you think about uh, one of the things that's odd about salt is that it's historically been made most in the areas of the world where uh, there is the least uh, surviving evidence of anything, meaning coastal uh, waters, marshes. These are areas that silt over and change. Uh, completely in the course of decades or hundreds of years, let alone thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So we know nothing about early salt production almost anywhere in the world. But 
we know anecdotally that uh, different civilizations needed it, and we find it in certain places uh, inland where we find evidence of salt production. Um, what I kind of like to suggest to people is that uh, round about 10,000, 11,000 years ago, at the end of the last ice age, we emerged from the caves and the savannas and started to grow our own food and raise our own animals. The day we did that, we needed to start producing salt as a dietary uh, requirement for ourselves and for our livestock. Mm -hmm. So from that day forward... Which means, give or take, there was an economic necessity and nutritional necessity for salt sometime around 10,000 years ago. Um, Archaeological evidence for salt doesn't go back that far. But we do have sites from about 6,000 years ago or or so, uh, especially in in, uh, northern Europe. And there's actually some anthropologists who uh, postulate that probably that's very likely that settlement patterns across Europe as as humankind migrated um, east through Asia towards uh, the Americas, uh, that those settlement patterns are actually um, uh, determined by the availability of salt resources. So we followed a salt trail. <laughs> Some people followed the spice trail, others followed the salt trail, right? Go figure. Well, and the thing is, is that salt, I mean, as I mentioned too, that it was, it, it was rare or it was sought after because it wasn't an easy thing to trade and carry, I mean, and and took time to produce out of the sea naturally certainly they could find it you know in the and then find it in uh, mines rock salt and and harvest that so uh, tell me talk a little bit about the difference between the rock salt and sea salt Mm -hmm. or rock deposit or salt deposits that that become rock yeah um uh, the irony of this whole thing is that for all of human history up until about 150 years ago salt was Probably uh, it was the most consistently precious commodity on the face of the earth, right. and as uh, you are probably at times in in Mali, for example, during the rise of the Great Malian Empire uh, around Timbuktu, um, salt traded pound for pound with gold. It was a very very precious uh, commodity at all times, largely because it's darn heavy, so it's very right. hard to transport. Right. It's universally rec- desired. And uh, the technologies for producing it have been uh, um, either underdeveloped or, or non-existent. So uh, the two major ways to get salt uh, uh, out of the, the world are by mining it or by evaporating off a salt brine. Uh, mining it, believe it or not, it sounds like it would be a really attractive way to do it. But pre-industrialization, mines were really hard to operate and, uh, and very, very hard to operate for large-scale, large volumes of production. So it takes a little more than just chipping away with a pickaxe. That's exactly right. You wish you could. Yeah. But it, that did happen. Uh, if you look at all the uh, towns across Austria, for example, that have the word H-A-L, that's a Celtic uh, uh, determination of the, having been a salt mine. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and there are some that are very, very old. Um, but to give you an example of how hard it is, as soon as the technology emerged to make it possible to mine that salt without chipping it out with a pickaxe, they went that direction. So now all the salts that are made out of the same area, they they pump a, a solution into the mine, and then a salt water brine comes out, and they boil that off. So the most common ways to make salt uh, historically have been through solar evaporation mm-hmm. and through evaporation uh, using fire. Um, and so there's an ancient technique called briquetage. It's a French term, uh, and it was it's been used since for as long as anybody knows, uh, including in the present-day areas where salt is now made by solar evaporation. So the technology for solar evaporation, believe it or not, is tougher to manage than boiling it. 
So you take uh, a saltwater brine, you put it into a giant uh, ceramic vessel of some sort, and you light a fire underneath it, and then boil off that water or simmer off that water until you get this giant thick puck of salt at the bottom of it. And then you break that ceramic vessel, and you have this cake of salt. And that's what's used to trade. Yeah. Oh, you you showed a picture in your book of a of a wonderful little cake of I don't know how little it was. It was hard to tell. Was it, yeah, like hockey, a hockey big puck. Ho- like a hockey big hockey puck. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And that was how that was a form that it would come in. And it, very often. and and, and it, that was the, the advantage of that was that it could be made rain or shine year round mm-hmm. in any climate in the world. Um, the bad part about it was that it required a forest nearby because you'd be cutting down and burning a lot of trees. Um, nonetheless, very common for many, many, many centuries. There are actually places, um, for example, in the south of France, where they have always assumed they were just natural rolling hills and mountains, and they determined later that it's actually solid mountains of bricotage that have taken that have formed over hundreds and hundreds of years. Wow, uh, crazy! Yeah, I mean, if, if anyone who's ever um, had the opportunity to to see um, uh, salt deposits in in um, you know the ocean salt deposits it's marvelous and watch them raking up the the salt from these pans these you know the the shallow pans it's really mesmerizing yeah. if, if you talk to a salt maker even nowadays oh i've only actually talked to people nowadays i didn't talk to anybody 100 years ago but if i could i would <laughs> um but if you talk to people they actually have this um i mean these are practical farmer type people they're 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 living from the the labor of their hands on off the land but they have this almost spiritual uh, reverence for what they're doing Mm. to a person. They all talk about it as this almost alchemic, beautiful process of, of, of converting the ocean using their hands and the sun to turn, to make salt. All right. I mean, and and of course in early Roman days, I mean, it was, it, they didn't really have the salt unless somebody came by with some salt that they got and salt equaled power. Whoever controlled the salt was, was the powerful one. Right. Um, but they would so they would make liquamen or, or garum, which you know, uh, just fermenting the uh, the fish from the ocean. Well, so the salt, fish guts, fish guts, right? Um, in a in a disgusting skin bag, <laughs> bury it. But if it I was could a, get garum and sell it, I would. I swear to God, it just sounds so weird. You can make it. Yeah, it's not a pleasant task. But you can make it. <laughs> Sauerkraut's uh, my limit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's akin to that, right? Um, stinky, a stinky project. But it was all that salt, that salt from the fish from the ocean. So I mean, you know, put two and two together, you know, and and think of what else you could do. So indeed, salt was not only just desired, I mean, it was a necessity. So everything changed come the mid-19th century. Everything changed. It became uh, not what we know, but a big business. Yeah. Um, Industrialization brought a lot of things. Um, and industrialization on its own could have certainly and, and had already begun to, uh, you know, salt in a sense has been industrialized since the dawn of time. The Romans made salt on a vast industrial scale, right. uh, uh, as did every, I mean, many people have. Um, but with the modern era of mechanization, industrialization took an entirely new twist and became a uh, vastly larger scale. What coincided with that ability to produce on a larger scale which probably might never have made that much economic sense on its own, was the advent of a couple chemical processes that allowed uh, chemists to uh, break apart the sodium and the chloride and make uh, a variety of different chemical products. And believe it or not, it was salt that provided the foundation for the entire uh, modern chemical industry. 
So over 12,000 products that we use in our daily lives are all made out of salt. Hmm. And until recently, actually, salt was the single largest chemical feedstock for the chemical industry. Hmm. Uh, petroleum now is the bigger yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when that happened, it put this enormous, uh, about 97% of the salt that's produced, depending on how you calculate numbers, goes into chemical processes, goes into non-food applications. And so, uh, I should say, yeah, not chemical. And so that 97% of the salt that's produced is not culinary salt. It's, it's big industrial uh, markets that, that consume it. And that completely obliterated everything. No, no, no small artisan producer could compete against a large-scale, uh, multi-mile, square, uh, square mile salt farm where bulldozers are, are harvesting the salt. Right. They all vanished. So the culinary salt was just sort of a small byproduct that they would sell off, and, and it was the extra salt? Yeah. Iodized. And the iodized salt, they kept. They added iodine to it? Yeah. I think it's in the, in the 20s. Uh, there, was, there was a realization. Uh, iodine is a very necessary dietary right. component uh, uh, or, or nutrient. And normally we get it from vegetables, and we get it from seafood, and, and, uh, and from milk. We get we get lots of iodine from those sources. There are certain parts of the world, especially during the era, the ages in, uh, where uh, in America, for example, when we had limited trade uh, with other, you say, with ports and before refrigeration, we didn't have seafood or fresh produce available in many places. Uh, those areas would become susceptible to iodine deficiency, mm. and that gives you uh, a, bu- a bunch of not very nice things that right. can happen to you. Right. Um, so. They experimented with iodization of lots of different things. You know, you can iodize flour, you can iodize, uh, they iodize milk, they iodize lots of different things to, to, to see what works. But the thing about salt is every single person in the world eats salt in almost the exact same quantities in every single food way, food uh, culture of the world. Mm-hmm. So they found this universally consumed product that they could uh, fairly inexpensively, actually very inexpensively, uh, iodate to basically iodate the entire planet. And it's done an amazing benefit to uh, to as as a sort of public health strategy for uh, for these uh, areas that are that are suffering from iodine deficiency. So not a bad thing when we talk about additives to foods. That's what, that was a healthy thing. That was it, a good health benefit. <laughs> it, it was a wonderful thing to do uh, to to uh, to benefit this uh, to 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 give public health officials a, a strategy for iodating a population. Mm. Um, but that said. I would venture to say that very few of us today need iodization from our salt Mm -hmm. uh, for a whole variety of reasons. For one, uh, you get a tremendous benefit from uh, just eating a little bit of fresh vegetables from most places where it's grown. Uh, Likewise with milk, uh, two portions of seafood uh, a week give you all the iodine you need. And uh, most multivitamins carry a daily supply of iodine. So you're getting it, plus you're getting it in an ambient way from all the other processed foods where they use iodized salt. Right. So to so me, the, it's like, don't go to iodized salt as your, as your, as your source for iodine. Right. And, and yet it was, it was what we knew during that time. Um, where, uh, before the, and we're going to talk more about the, the artisanal salts, but so the majority of the salt that was sold, let's, let's say in the U S was all, uh, rock salt, mined salt. M- most of the, First off, in terms of the salt that's used, the, the biggest market in the U.S. Uh, are there are two major major markets that are not culinary. Uh, one is road salt, um, mm. 
And there are big mines up in Canada that are pushing 11 million tons of salt a year. Wow. Uh, from a single mine. It's completely staggering. Uh, but that's almost exclusively rock salt for, uh, for roads and things like but that. But the culinary salt that we, you know, that we shake on our foods that, that, before we get to the artisanal. Ones, Most of the obviously. salt that we get for, for, for food is made by, uh, by this, a, a process called uh, vacuum evaporation. They take, um, basically set up a factory on top of a salt deposit, pump water into the deposit, pump that salty brine out of it, and then put it into a series of boilers that boil it off to concentrate the brine down and, and crystallize salt. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about taste, the important part of salt. So stay tuned. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 4.30 p.m., tune in to Burning Down the House. Architecture is the laser focus of Burning Down the House, a weekly discourse on all things built, destroyed, admired, and despised. Each week, Curtis B. Wayne, your host, invites a posse of authors, critics, builders, designers, and other architecture fiends to reflect on various topics related to perhaps the most functional of all art forms. Again, that's every Sunday at 4.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. We are back talking with Mark Bitterman, the author of Salted and a sommelier, a salt expert and owner of uh, two salt stores. Now, Mark, your stores are the only, that, as, that you know of, the only actual salt stores, stores devoted to salt um, in the U.S., is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> I think that's very nice. Let's talk about this reemergence of artisanal salts. I mean, I, I'm sure that anyone who's, uh, if you haven't been living under a rock, rock and definitely not a salt rock, a salt rock. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Um, you've heard of fleur de sel and uh, varieties of salt, the the um, uh, Malden salts and the flake salts and the crystal salts and. Tell, first of all, tell me a little bit about the difference between flaked salts and crystals. Yeah, one of the things that was really exciting to do in the book um, that was sort of a response to a sense of frustration that I, uh, we just kind of felt was out there in the world is uh, sort of creating a taxonomy, if you will, of salt, breaking down the basic types of salt from a culinary perspective so that you can understand what to expect from a salt and then how to use it. So um, we came up with... Uh, uh, or, or I would I say, was, say we formalize uh, a, a basic architecture for it. And what you have are are the most popular types that like you mentioned is fleur de sel, which is a very uh, granular 
uh, salt with very delicate crystals and a lot of moisture and minerals. And then uh, a flaky salt, for example, like Malden that you mentioned, which are parchment fine crystals uh, with a very kind of more pungent flavor. Mm. And then coarser salts that maybe are are chunky and awkward. And then, of course, rock salts like we talked about that are just a solid crystal lattice where you have to bite through it just like a rock. Wow. Um, not as ideal. Um, or grind it up really, really fine. And so we came up with uh, about seven different categories of salt, about four of which are very common and very popular. So the fleur de sel that we talked about, sel gris, mm-hmm. which many people also know is a coarser, uh, silvery gray salt oftentimes. Uh, great for your hearty foods, and then uh, a flaky salt, and then, uh, of course, traditional salt, which is what most uh, natural sea salts are. That's where you, if you ever see like a, a red Hawaiian salt or a black lava salt or all these esoteric yeah, fuzzy I was going to talk salts. about colors, too. Yeah. yeah, great colors in salts, right? And these are basically from the ele- some of the minerals that are... are um the trace minerals that are still there in the salt before they're cleaned out? Or? The, the, the colors in most salts, uh, salt naturally will, will range from uh, brilliant, brilliant white to silver gray to pinkish. Uh, and those are kind of the ranges that you'll find it in most often, ex- excepting rock salts. Rock salts can have a ton of mineral inclusions that make them v- rather wild colors. Himalayan pink salt mm-hmm. can be quite like, like, like meat red. Um, or very pale pink, or even yellow. We have some beautiful new yellow salts from Pakistan that are uh, look like like saffron. Um, but uh, or, or even strangest of all would be say a blue salt uh, that blue, we have from yeah. from Germany, which is this. It literally looks like little bits of broken up sapphire inside the salt crystal. Huh. So crazy colors um, that way. Most salts that we see in in, in a, it sort of like a gourmet salt you might see at a store. Those brighter colors like the red. Uh, or bolder colors like the red or black, those come from additions after they're produced. So uh, the red clay, for example, that you find in Hawaii on the mm-hmm. islands, it's very iron-rich red clay, has historically been slightly mixed up in trace amounts in the salt. And to make a more gourmet salt, it's actually just more intentionally added to get this gorgeous, lustrous, brick-red color. Well, Harold McGee just wrote an article um, uh, last week in the New York Times on salt and, and did mention you and credited you in your book. Um, and suggests that these trace minerals can either suppress or accentuate the saltiness of salt, which, I mean, you know, salt is one way or the other, and how um, saltiness. One would think that salt is salty, right? But it's not true. It's, it's all a matter of degree in tasting. You give a very, um, and, and I want you to talk to that, after I describe that you said tasting salt that you gave almost like how to taste salt just like one would say how to taste wine or chocolate (laughs) and like diamonds it's all about the crystal or the color and the body and the taste now you talk a lot about something but you didn't mention this as a criteria for tasting and to me it's essential and that is the crunch oh yeah the crunch of salt um, I'm, to, the, the, to me, and this is an interesting point that, uh, for example, the, the article in the, in the New York Times didn't uh, touch on, is that to me, salt is uh, in a, it's, it's a whole thing. It's not sodium chloride. Uh, if you look at the hundred and so plus salts we have in the store, each one looks completely different than the next. They all have different colors, different sizes, different shapes. And how um, many? And how many salts do you have in your store? About 120. Wow. And uh, so. It's a set, to me, it's, it's indispensable that you think about the salt as an actual object, as an actual thing that has a, a shape and size and character to it. And to try to divorce the 
salt from that and dissolve it into solution to talk about its chemical com- components to me is is doesn't make any sense at all because that's no. not how we eat salt. Right, we eat salt as a thing. Um, so it's sort of like if you're going to take talk about um, say I don't know really good uh, pizza and then to taste it you put it in a blender and <laughs> add it into a bunch of water and then tasted it and you compared people's pizzas to me that makes no sense at all. So. Yeah, crunch, crunch is crunch is crunch is huge. very important to me. Yeah. And so, and 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 that itself is also very beautiful and complex. To give you an example, crunch can be a, a, for a, for a flake salt can be this bright, quick kind of snap. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in a, in say a coarse, moist cell gris, you'll have these clumps and agglomerations of different crystals stacked up on top of each other with a lot of moisture locked up inside. And you mm. get this beautiful, yielding, more uh, kind of supple crunch, and that can be. And it'll be very differently. It'll it'll communicate its saltiness and its flavor, and it will interact with the food much differently depending on how uh, that crunch hits you. Well, and even a, a, um, a fleur de sel from the Garand versus one from the Camargue. Uh, the from the from the Garand, I find the crystals are much more desirable to me. That they're a little slower to dissolve. They're they're. You know the crunch is better. My husband will be the first. He won't accept anything else. He goes, "This isn't the regular salt that we usually have." You know, <laughs> that, that's a that's a really good point, and that's funny because you you know in France you could go to war over that. The the, the, the <laughs> South produces uh, on the Mediterranean they produce some fleur de sel, and on the Atlantic coast uh, they produce fleur de sel in these very ancient Celtic salt making settlements. And the two salts are actually made the uh, using very similar techniques that are adapted to reflect the the climate. Um, but the salts are entirely different. And you're right, the crystal, the crunch, as you put it, is very, very different. If you look at a Florida Celta Camargue, it's quite translucent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's sheeny and bright and quite translucent. And if you look at a Florida Cell from Garand, you see it's it's clouded by a ton of little imperfections and inclusions in the crystal. And a lot more moisture. A lot more moisture. That, that yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, I mean, there are people who, you know, super tasters who are very sensitive. Interesting super tasters, however, are not those who will taste the food and say it's too salty. They're, uh-huh. they're sensitive to bitter flavors, but not saltiness. And some people can, some people are very, very sensitive to saltiness. Um, and for others, there's never enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually more the former. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it, I, people think I'm just trying to be cute, but I don't actually like salty food. Uh, I, I love salt, but I love salt to do its job, which is to bring flavor Enhance out. Enhance the flavor of the other foods, it's, it's, right? It's there to celebrate and, and, and make everything shine. Yeah. Well, uh, and today, I mean, look at today, we have the salted caramels, the salted chocolates. You mm. talk a lot about that in your book, too. And it's, it, I mean, that salt does have a job to transport those flavors and, and really enhance them. And it, and, and that's a huge right part about good. tasting salt as well, is you, you really, you don't eat salt by itself. Any, you know, it's, it's, it's designed, its whole purpose is, is to accentuate the flavor of food. So when you talk about the tasting of a salt, you really need to look at how that particular salt is going to do its job with, with a given food. Well, and we now include umami as, as one of our flavors, and, and salt does have that um, ability to enhance that umami Oh, yeah. uh, richness, flavor, that earthy, round flavor that we get. Some salts even have a little umami of their own. Huh. Interesting. Uh, like Interesting. a Japanese sea salt I can think of called Moshio. It's this gorgeous kind of beige ca- cafe au lait color. 
Um, and it has this beautiful umami flavor. You put that on something like like on rice or on uh, a lighter color fish, and you get this, or a cucumber sandwich, and you get this amazing rich umami quality to your food. Oh, in tasting salts, I liked how you said cucumber was the the perfect vehicle for tasting salts, and yeah. then, and. Not everybody's most exciting food, but <laughs> well, and it shouldn't be. Right. I mean, I mean, we're t- we're tasting salt after all, you know. So when we do a class on salt, which we do about every month, uh, both in Portland and in New York, uh, as well as uh, elsewhere, like cooking schools, uh, what we uh, usually present is a slice of cucumber, or say six slices of cucumber and six pieces of bread and butter. And we taste six salts. Blind tasting, right? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes not, because I don't eat blindfolded, so I like to eat with my eyes too, um, and. I think that uh, you put a little bit of salt on the bread and butter and a little bit of the salt on the cucumber. And so now you have the play of the salt on two very different kinds of foods. Texture, yeah, and the texture and then the, the moisture, moist vegetable, mm. uh, uh, fatty, but bready, buttery. Tell me a little bit about your opinions on flavored salts. Um, I, a, I like them. Uh, I think that they're cool. Um, for us, we and I'm talking about things like truffled salt. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, yeah, and we sell a variety. We probably have out of our 120-ish salts, we have maybe 10 or 12 flavored salts. For me, it, this, the flavored salt needs to accomplish something that's a little bit greater than some of its parts. Meaning, you can take anything and put it in salt, and it's going to taste good. Mm. So, uh, but however, uh, not everybody can aff- uh, afford a beautiful black Italian truffle. You know, that whatever those things cost now, a thousand dollars, quite a bit, right? So. But a truffle salt does a much, much better job of capturing and, 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 and honestly portraying all the beautiful aromatic flavors of a truffle. So for a pinch, which is about a penny or two of truffle salt, you get a, be- a beautiful uh, Italian black truffle mm-hmm. on your food or your French fries or your baked potato or uh, your risotto. And, uh, and it's just kind of black truffle on tap. So for us, it's always got to have a sort of a strategic dimension to it. Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time, and I'm sorry because I really wanted to talk about some recipes. You don't have anything out, you know, that terribly out of the ordinary. No. Um, maybe some of the the flavored salts around the rim of a glass for drinks, you know, or, which are quite nice. Um, but one thing that did catch my attention that I thought was uh, most people would not be familiar with, or, or and was very interesting to me, was cooking with salt bricks. Now that was uh, that I thought was quite unique and quite interesting to include. Yeah, that's a ball. I mean, the the, the enormous. Uh, the, I've the had pr- it served like sushi served on a on a brick plate, but we're talking about cooking with it, right? Yep, yep. Or uh, on it. Almost all the recipes in the book are intended to just help people to cook and eat better. So it's not intended to dazzle. It's how to do a steak or mm-hmm. or how to do uh, you know I don't know. Make uh, a, a green salad, anything that we eat in our daily lives. I didn't mean to, to demean the recipes. Yeah. I'm just no, saying, no. but they're not, Absolutely. you know, don't it's, buy the book just for the recipe, but it, buy it for the it, knowledge. Unless you don't know how the to knowledge. salt a salad. <laughs> right. uh, um, and that's the idea is to, is to get people to salt things in their daily lives more effectively. But yes, there are also some, there, there are lots of really wonderful novel things you can do with salt. And taking a block of this huge luminescent pink uh, Himalayan salt from Pakistan, heating it up on the stovetop, to 500 degrees right on top of a gas flame. right on your gas right. burner put wow. it on there like a like a like a big skillet and it has this incredible thermal stability it makes cast iron feel like tinfoil hmm. and then you throw flank steak on there or scallops or shrimp but you have to heat it for about a half an hour first it takes so, about half an hour yeah, 45 yeah. minutes to heat it so it's like lighting a charcoal fire but it <laughs> sears your food and salts it and it gets a salty glaze it's the most delicious thing you could ever taste and it's not it doesn't dissolve with the with the fats 
right? No, because fat uh, salt isn't fat soluble. Hmm. So it, uh, you, you, is, when you're doing it hot enough to actually sear, the moisture in the food doesn't come out fast enough to really over season your food. So when you do it perfectly with a really hot salt block. Your food is actually seasoned to perfection. And about how hot does this block get? Can get? Uh, I've had them up 800, 900 degrees. Wow! You you can't it's get like a it floor hot of a pizza oven. I mean, that's, yep, that's exactly yeah. right. Wow, that's amazing. And you even included a picture of a, of a salt bowl. Mm. Mm, a, a nice big bowl, and then you uh, make a chocolate fondue in there. You get a lightly salted chocolate fondue. Okay, it's time to eat. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> time for lunch. Mark Bitterman, it has been a pleasure. And um, Mark Bitterman is the author of Salted, a book about all about salt, and the owner of The Meadow in Portland, Oregon, and New York City, and a sommelier. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank our executive producer, Jack Inslee. This has been Linda Palaccio for A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. And now here's some behind-the-scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. I noticed that the beef industry is doing its very best to counteract the negative press that they have gotten for years about commodity beef production methods or commodity livestock production. They've just started a Feed Yard Foodie blog, which is written by a woman who does run a feed yard operation out in Nebraska. I'm not going to endorse or condemn what she writes, but I think it does present an opportunity for consumers to learn more about the commodity livestock industry. You can take from it what you will, uh, but I definitely urge you to check it out. It's always good to see what the other side says. Uh, You can find this at feedyardfoodie.wordpress.com. Check it out. This is Katie Kiefer for behind-the-scenes food news. Did you know we have a beer show? Check out a small clip from Beer Sessions Radio. All right, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43, and I'm here with Ray Dieter from the DBA Bars. Hey, Jim. Ray, this is a fun show. We're drinking Belgian beer. We're drinking Ictagum. Hanging out with the guys from 124 Rabbit Club. we got uh, Don... And Wendy from Van Berg and the Wolf. Well, let's go back a little bit to, to kind of build your pedigree. So the two of, the, two of your top brands that we love and that you have now, Scaldis and Saison DuPont. Yeah, exactly. Tell us uh, how you met those guys, how you started working with them. Well, Saison DuPont was really... that. Was if you want to hear more, head over to HeritageRadioNetwork.com where new episodes of Beer Sessions are posted every week in our archive. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. In the next few weeks, Heritage Foods USA will be offering an interesting variety of amazing products, ranging from top-quality seafood to their famous pork cuts. At the end of May, the Heritage team will go up to Maine to harvest fresh lobster with sustainable lobster meat. These delicious lobster are a perfect way to kick off the summer season. In the pork department, Heritage Foods USA will offer the maple-cured smoked boneless heritage ham at an unbeatable price. This offer won't last long, so get them while you can. Place your order today at HeritageFoodsUSA.com or call 718-389-0985. That's 718-389-0985 to place your order with Andrea or Ashley. 
And don't forget to sign up for the email list and to check them on Facebook and Twitter to get in on their new products, deals, and offers from Heritage Foods USA.